0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Singer Equipment Company provides industry-leading service to restaurants nationwide. Whether you're expanding or upgrading or just need a partner to help navigate supply chain challenges, Singer Equipment Company is here for you. Visit singerequipment.com to learn more.
2: Well, hello, welcome to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer, and it is Wednesday, March 9th, 2022. This is our 317th episode of this series, which is dedicated to behind-the-scenes talent in the hospitality industry. Today, my guest is a founder, CEO, film director, producer, and writer, and yes, that's all one person, and I will introduce her fully in a moment. First, as I do on every show, I will start out with my PR tip, and then later we will have my speed round game, industry news discussion, solo dining experience, and the final question. As the founder of Bayer Public Relations, I'm going to tip the show off with my PR tip of the week. So today's tip is to never stop fighting for equality. Yes, we all deserve fairness and equal rights, and we need to be adamant about it. As unfortunately, it's not just a given, even in today's day and age. Human rights are inherent for all human beings, regardless of race, sex, nationality, ethnicity, language, religion, or any other status. So let's remember to advocate for equality always. That's my tip today. Okay, I'm really excited to have my guest joining me. It is Joanna James, she's the founder and CEO of MAP, which stands for Mentorship. Advocacy, pandemic relief, and the power of women. It's a nonprofit supporting women led food organizations, empowering women to lead through mentorship and advocacy. And it's having its first MAP Restaurant Reset Conference in South Florida from April 24th to 26th. Joanna is also a first time film director of A Fine Line, Vanity Fair's best documentary focusing on a women's place in the kitchen. And she's a producer and writer. Without further ado, hi Joanna, welcome to the show.
3: Hi Sherry, thanks for having me.
2: Thanks for joining me. There's this is going to be exciting. There's so much to talk about.
3: <laughs> yes, there is. <sighs>
2: So I always start with my guests to find out about how they got into their career. So you want to take us back and before, um, at the beginning, what what led you eventually to to want to produce A Fine Line? Because that's when my introduction to you or your career came. You sure you want to go there? Because that could be the whole podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Well...
3: (laughs) The only reason I say that is because I feel like I have a few different careers on different tracks, but very connected. Um, number one, I never ever would have called myself a filmmaker or thought in a million years, that's what I would ever do. Um, my passion was always from literally a little girl storytelling, um, and in particularly writing, but, um, you know, I, it's funny because so my parents they opened pizza stores, lots of them and then would sell them. But there was a family rift um, over you know the the restaurant that my uh, mother's parents had. And so my pa- my parents got out of the industry and somehow opened video stores. And even from three years old, I remember, many memories of sitting there while, you know, they're working and I'm literally in front of like a VHS player and old TV little box and just watching my favorite movies over and over again. And so I do think there was always this love of film, um, you know, always glued to the Oscars. But again, when I was growing up, I never saw any woman film directors. Um, You know, the big names were Scorsese and Spielberg and Coppola, but not Sofia Coppola, you know. Um, Now today, that's a different story. You know, I could list off so many who I love and respect. Um, and, And that's part of our MAP motto, which I know we'll talk about MAP, the nonprofit I founded. But it's if you see it, you can be it. And so I think what I ended up doing was sticking to what seemed more um, within reach, which was uh, to be a journalist, to be a newspaper reporter. And that's all I ever did from you know junior high throughout high school, I was the editor of my paper. And then um, any other waking moment was at my mother's restaurant because uh, clearly they got out of the uh, you know, video store business and got into, uh, my mother ended up uh, opening her own restaurant my parents uh, were divorced. And, um, and, and so I was there any time if I wasn't at my grandparents' house, who pretty much raised me. And I loved being there. And so I probably worked every, um, you know, every department in uh, the restaurant from literally on the line. That didn't last very long. I was always more the front of the house person. Um, and then when it came to going to college, I knew I wanted to become a bartender. Because I'd always done uh, serving, but I was too young to do bartending, so I took this like old course, and it's so funny looking back. And I memorized every drink you know known to mankind. But I really wanted to help my mom and not you know feel like um, she had to financially support me or anything. I always wanted to be independent in that regard, and so I did. I got my first bartending job as soon as I went to Boston for college. And then I've never turned back. I I have always been either bartending or serving and writing. Those are my two things. And it wasn't until making a fine line that I stopped pretty much, uh, you know, working in the restaurants because I was now making my first film and I was also having my first baby. So it was just impossible to do both. But um, I guess that's that's the answer about that.
2: Wow, it's amazing. What wait, where did you grow up? Where was um your mom's restaurant? So my mom's
3: restaurant is in Holden, Massachusetts, which is uh basically like 5-10 minutes outside of Worcester, Mass. And anyone who knows Worcester, it's it's got a pretty uh legendary reputation for some reason. I didn't know about that until I left Worcester, but uh yeah, that's where I'm from.
2: Okay, cool. So so what inspired you to 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 make a fine line. And what was the process like as a first time film director, producer?
3: Well, it was very personal to be honest. It it didn't start with this huge aha moment on gender equality or women's rights. It wasn't that at all. It was really, uh, number one, even the thought of making a movie. Again, I, I never would have thought I could do that. And I didn't have that in my you know game plan. But um, a friend, all of a sudden, I reconnected after you know, not seeing her for a long time. Somehow we're talking about family and, and this and that. And um, she said, you need to make a movie on your mom. And it was as if like just hearing those words spoken out loud and the possibility that it could be done, all of a sudden I was like you know, a dog with a bone where it's like, yes, that's exactly what I have to do and I'm going to do it. And I had no idea what the first step was. I probably went what I always do, like go to a bookstore and get like, you know, 101 for dummies type of thing. Um, and, right. and <laughs> um, you know, fast forward through really being like that storyteller and, and sort of envisioning what I wanted in there. Um, I hired a crew. It was a very, you know, small crew, but um, somehow found them, I think, literally on Craigslist. It's funny looking back, like how I initially started. Um, but from that first interview with my mom, um, I really, she was so candid, she was so raw. I think it was about like five hours of a sit-down interview where she was crying. I was crying. Um, and I really had to interview her not as my mother, but as a woman wanting to know more about each you know phase of her life, including her childhood, um, as you know a, a wife, as a mother, um, and so that really started to open things up for me because number one, I had known it all of it, but it was different when I got to hear it from her reflecting back and and again being so um, you know authentic about it all and then I became pregnant during uh, production, which was really interesting because now, after literally hearing everything my mother went through. Um, all the obstacles. She really, I think, what resonates about a fine line, and in particularly with men too, which is so interesting, is the underdog story. There, you know, people really um, connect with the fact that um, no matter whether it was childhood, whether it was uh, in on the home front in the restaurant, she was just always having to, um, overcome, overcome the obstacles, overcome all the things that were thrown her way and not, none of it really on, you know, from her fault. Um, and so I think, you know, that really started opening things up for me. And also the, the journalists in me came out because now I was seeing, okay, so, um, Again, this was eight years ago. This was 2014. So it was a different discussion, like a different national dialogue around women's rights, gender equality. Um, And and what was happening was everyone, and I would say, especially women, were really owning it Um, and not just working women, women in the, you know, stay at home moms, everyone just I feel like women were finally saying we want more. And that was a powerful moment. And I was experiencing it myself, like everything my mother was sharing with me that she went through 30 years prior. Um, I was literally going through it the same thing, introductions that were promised to me that never happened, um, you know, uh, meetings that should have been uh, very straightforward about um, capital. Um, it, it was not the way. It, and, and when I talked to some of my guy friends about it, they were like, that would never happen to us. So um, again, just started to really dig into the research and then I realized, okay, now we have to make this about a shared experience because we know everyone's going through this and especially women in the hospitality and culinary industry. Um, There was so much that was being talked about um, at that point in time, Uh, you know, still, even when we're talking about awards and recognition, it, it was nowhere near where it is today. So, um, so that's how I decided to really open it up and include these other incredible stories of, um, you know, really public, uh, acclaimed, uh, chefs and restaurateurs. Yes,
2: yeah, so you, you got a lot of, uh, amazing, amazing chefs in, were in the movie, um, which I saw, which, uh, before I, you know, before I knew you, I just, I heard about the movie and I remember, um, going to see it and it's, it's fantastic. And. And you, you know, who would, who would have, would never have known it was your first time making a movie. (laughs) Um, But you, you then, I mean, you, let's, I guess, this, the movie debuted, what was, it was 20, the beginning of 2020?
3: No. So, uh, officially we started doing the film festival circuit um, in 2018, oh, but technically, okay. Napa Valley Film Festival, that was our first one. That was the end of 2017. But for a good year, we were doing film festivals. And, um, and, and then what happens? The Me Too movement. And specifically, of course, rocking the you know, hospitality industry uh, with Mario Batali and Ken Friedman. And, um, and it didn't sit right with me to not go there, to not, um, connect that to the film because we, number one, two of the shifts, uh, two of the, uh, chefs who were featured in the film were connected to them, Lydia Bastianich and, um, and April Bloomfield. And, um, and it was just such a powerful moment that I, I really did not feel right as a filmmaker to, to put this out there without, um, you know, including that. So I basically took a locked picture, uh, you know, just sort of lingo for a film that for all intents and purposes was completely finished, post-production, all of that. And um, said, no, we have to go back in. So I I went out, did very minimal filming. It wasn't to, you know, really take the film there, but it was to at least incorporate something that was just very um, necessary to be part of the storyline. And so I went out, talked to uh, another couple of chefs, um, and, and, you know, re-edited a bit and, um, and it made all the difference. And, uh, and then from there, you know, now we're talking, it's, it's, you know, considered now in, not a new film, but, you know, then we started to get it out there. So that was about 2019 where we were doing more like grassroots screenings. Um, we, we did a screening tour because what I found was that when I started doing the film festivals. Or even um, some food film festivals like Devour in Nova Scotia, or um, what was the other one? There was another great, oh, well, the Napa one, that women chefs and restaurateurs were going. And then they'd approach me after, and you know, I'm getting goosebumps thinking about it, actually, because they would come up to me and say, thank you for telling our story. Finally, thank you for telling our story. Um, or the other thing I would hear a lot is Val's story is my story. And so that was, um, you know, number one, that was the most rewarding thing I could have ever heard and gotten as a filmmaker. Um, And so that made me realize, well, there's more to be done here. It's not just about getting the film out there. It's not just about like, you know, getting it on a streamer or something like that, because I was a first time filmmaker. So the likelihood is it just get on and then go away after a month or so. Um, you know, there'd be no marketing around it. No one would really watch it. And I just wanted to make sure that, um, the message that was in this film, the issues that we got into, that they were being discussed. And more than that, even that the women in chefs and restaurateurs in their communities were being recognized because, um, they still really weren't to the, to the, um, you know, degree that we thought was necessary. So we went on a cross-country screening tour from like Spokane, Washington, to Bentonville, Arkansas, to you know, of course, Chicago and and uh, you know, L.A. and all over. But we went into their communities. We would um, you know do press releases, try to get local press, um, really just to show that here's these incredible women, many of them women of color who don't have the money for PR, who don't have the time to even consider it really. They're just head down working so hard, but yet they are so deserving of the attention because we also saw there's a direct correlation between media and press uh, and, and awards to access to capital. So, you know, it just, it, it was something that um, just kept evolving, kept growing. We were also, we partnered with a national Women, uh, excuse me, National Partnership for Women and Families out of D.C., where while we were doing this tour, we also really wanted to make sure that, um, and this is where the advocacy side of what we were doing started, that the message was there. If we have women in, uh, you know, what's considered razor thin margin industry restaurants able to offer paid family leave, and, and at the time, I think only about like six states offered paid family leave. Now today we're only up to nine, believe it or not. We're the only uh, industrialized country that does not offer paid family leave. Um, so we were also, you know, showing the power of, of what women do, and, and particularly in the in the hospitality industry, yeah. and, and getting into topics like affordable, accessible child care and flexible scheduling, things that literally were not in the Uh, public discourse then a few years ago, but
2: now, of course, are front and center. Wow. It's amazing. Really amazing. So let's let's get into MAP and this kind of how you progressed into founding the organization. And I'll ask my question for my last guest. On episode 316, I had on Zod Arafay. He's the chef and owner of Wicked Jane, which is a restaurant in Manhattan's Greenwich Village offering modern American cuisine with a tasting menu and a la carte options. And he wants to know, what was your inspiration to start this movement? Was there a moment that sparked you that you knew you had to do this? It's kind of referring to, I mean, you've touched on this, but really more um, getting into map.
3: Yeah, I, I really, uh, number one, thanks for the questions, Zod. I've eaten many great meals at Wicked Jane, so that's cool. Oh, um,
2: that's amazing.
3: Yes, <laughs> and um, it's not, it, it was never really one moment. The interesting thing about this is it was so many moments that just, it was almost like that avalanche effect. It keeps getting bigger and bi- bigger, and um, and and everything was just, again, like big picture was connecting for me. So number one, as a first-time filmmaker, the way I was able to make a fine line was uh, on the ground, learning from professionals who were giving of their time, of their insight, of their knowledge. Um, I did not go to school for filmmaking. I knew nothing of it. But that's why mentorship is so important. Uh, You know, like you said, Sherry, MAP stands for mentorship, advocacy, uh, pandemic relief, which we're shifting now to PURPOSE. Um, but, um, and, the, and the power of women. And so mentorship is so huge because for a lot of us women, we don't have a seat at the table. We don't have access to the introductions to get us that seat at the table. We don't have access to capital or to the best people who are going to get us the PR, the best accountants, the best lawyers. It really comes down to, you know, what we all hear, a boys club. And so mentorship is a way to break through that because you start to learn what it is you need to know to get there. And you also start to feel more confident to approach the people who are already there and and get that type of encouragement and help and insight. So, um, so, you know, I I learned that as a a first-time filmmaker and really trying myself to uh, advance in my own career. So that was something that's very important. Advocacy, again, I think on a personal level, because I became a working mother um, when I literally was making my first movie. And then my husband jokes, he always says, if you want to have babies, make a movie, because in the course of production, post-production and distribution, that's when we had our three daughters. And it was not <laughs> necessarily planned, but you know, of course, that's what happened. And so, um, you know, all these issues were so real and, and relevant to me, um, because I was dealing with all those things. Like if I didn't, you know, if I wasn't self-employed, how in the world could I have a baby and, um, go back to work? I just couldn't do it, you know, not only for the financial reasons, but it's so hard mentally, you know, psychologically, to just leave that little baby after, what, a few weeks, even after three months. So, you know, all these issues made sense. And, and we saw the importance of what a film does, you know, and I think that's what um, I was learning going on the road and really touring with the film was that it's not about statistics or articles or data. It comes down to can you share a personal story? Can you share something that's so heart? wrenching that, that just gets people going, that it, that, that slowly starts to shift the mind frame, you know? And so that was really powerful to see people, um, you know, change a little bit on some of these issues or want to do more when it came to women's rights that they realized, why, why do I automatically not even start paying attention when we're talking about women's rights, when women's rights are really uh, human rights. If you have, if you're a man, if you have a mother, a sister, a daughter, you know this matters to you too. When we're talking about, uh, you know, fair pay, when we're talking about zero policy for harassment, um, so we just tried to really connect the dots in a way that um, that didn't hit people over the head with the information as much as make it make sense to them. And what better way is there to do that than a universal shared experience of breaking bread? you know, of having uh, such a communal experience of food and hospitality. Um, so I, I think I'm, I don't know if I'm answering the question no, here. You but. totally, you
2: totally have. And I love, I mean, your passion, I just, you know, as you speak, it, it's coming from your heart and you're talking about so many important uh, issues and things that you're, you're working on through MAP, and let's talk about the conference you're doing because now you're about to be a first-time conference producer.
3: <laughs> yes, and you know firsthand it's amazing what you created with your conference uh, a couple years back. Yeah. Um, well, I
2: know I did my host conference, and so I, I, I know what it takes to do a conference, and it takes a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's yes. a lot. Um, it's a big undertaking. And so, um, Map Restaurant Reset is taking place in South Florida, down in, in Fort Lauderdale, April 26th, uh, 24th to 26. So, um, tell us about it. And I'm going to be there. So, I'm super excited. <laughs> yes, me too. Uh, well, we're really excited about this. You know, the way we even created Map
3: was we, you know, was uh, right at the beginning of COVID. There was obviously no way we were going touring with a film or doing all the events that we were doing. So it gave me time to sort of just reflect and say, okay, what is the service we're offering? What can we do of value to, you know, the so many women, especially women chefs and restaurateurs who were following us on social media, who would always DM us or email, or I even got phone calls. So that's how, you know, this all started to come about in terms of a official 501c3 and what we could do with mentorship, with advocacy, everything. And um, over the course of talking to so many different uh, leaders in the industry, because I was also developing um, a new film series, but, you know, the conversations that we were having, it was unbelievable because it didn't matter if you were the most established um, you know, highly respected restaurant group or a small independent mom and pop shop. Everyone was pretty much in the same boat as to thinking, how can we do this better? You know, the restaurant industry has pretty much been operating the same way for the past hundred years, if not longer. Okay, there's a few differences with technology, with new terms, but overall, um, you know, it's it's operating the way it is, and there must be a more efficient an easier way to do it, so people aren't burning out. Um, you know, especially after COVID, where not just about the stress of protecting your staff, your customers, but also, you know, so many people I was talking to, they were working harder than ever before, and yet obviously making a lot less. And then you shift to today, and some of them are doing really well because, you know, again, they were there for their communities, and now their communities are showing that support. But now they've, they're dealing with supply chain issues, with uh, staffing issues, all these things. So um, I just feel like we're at a precipice of where do we go from here? It can either be really exciting because everyone knows we have to make changes. So what are we going to do? Or it can be like actually really bad. It can't stay the same, that's for sure, because... Um, It's it's just not possible, you know, and so either and when I say really bad, I mean, like, if we thought it was bad enough that a couple hundred thousand restaurants have closed down, we're still in it. We're still going through the history. It's not like even though COVID everyone feels it's gone, not the repercussions. And I think people are are getting so burnt out are so, um, you know, just trying to figure out how can I do this better, um, even if they love it that um, I'm afraid I don't want our favorite restaurants to close down and, or to prevent the next generation from getting in. And so that's what the Restaurant Reset is all about. It's really bringing together all our leaders and not just the leaders who are on the, you know, best food and wine lists or James Beard uh, Foundation uh, nominations and all this and all that. It's really we're curating an audience of people who we really highly respect who we've met along on our travels. We're providing scholarship tickets to make sure it's the most inclusive, represented um, audience uh, because everyone's going to participate. It's not like some huge, you know, thousand-person um, conference. This is really going to be about all of us sharing, inspiring one another, um, and learning from each other to see how we can do things better and have a really good time. I, let me say we, we're going to really. <laughs> food, drinks, of course.
2: all of that. Yes. Yeah. Well, it's, 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 um, yeah, it's, it's going to be fantastic. Do you want to talk a little about some, some of the speakers or some of the, um, the agenda and then we'll, and then we'll take a little break.
3: Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, one of the first events we're doing on Sunday as part of our welcome reception is, um, Mentorship speed dating, which we've done before. And it really is so fun, but so um, effective. You know, all of our attendees will be uh, divided in round tables and all of the experts, which you're one of them. So I'm so, so happy you're going
2: to be there representing people, branding. <laughs> Yeah, I'm honored. I'm very honored to be a part of it. Thank you.
3: And so all of our experts are going to rotate table to table, but we're talking about experts having to do with finances and accounting with, um, you know, sustainability, technology, uh, profitability, growth, expansion, all the different uh, top issues for uh, whether you're just opening your first brick and mortar or you're scaling a restaurant group. And JJ Johnson, who we're so happy is is coming, he's going to be one of our uh keynote speakers that evening about the power of male allyship and and what more men can be proactively doing uh to really make a
2: difference. So um so Yeah, JJ's J Z awesome. So and yeah, we're
3: super excited about that. And then Monday's our full day of programming. Um, amazing panels lined up. We have a keynote conversation to start off the day with uh, Tanya Holland and Karen Econowicz. We have a, a panel with, uh, I mean, you name it, and, and we just work so hard to get them there. And we're just so grateful they're a part of it. And people who are also not just the, like, the standard bearers who were thrilled are part of this, like Mary Sue Milligan, uh, Chip Wade, the president of Union Square Hospitality Group, um, but also some, you know, newcomers who are doing exciting things in their um, businesses. So um, we're really thrilled about that. And, and we think that's going to make a big difference um, in, in the overall feel of uh, of what we're looking to do there.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's incredible. It, it's it's yeah, you've got a, a two very packed Two and a half days, or of 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 programming and amazing people involved. So, um, yeah, um, I'm really looking forward to being there and a part of it. So, um, we will give information later of where people can get tickets and and get and go to South Florida. It's a nice time to get down there.
3: <laughs> Absolutely. That if that's not enough incentive, right? Especially with yeah. this, yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. So. Perfect. Okay. So we'll take a little break. We'll come back. We'll play my speed round game, talk some industry news. I have my solo dining experience this week and the final question. So stay with us. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network.
1: If there's one thing we can all agree on in the restaurant industry, it's that the working world has gotten weird. It makes sense to be thinking about your options and how to build your career in 2022. Health insurance, benefits, a 401k match. A job at Singer gives you the chance to start fresh while still working in the hospitality world you know and love, but from a different perspective. Work alongside kitchen and tabletop designers to be a part of restaurant openings all over New York City and beyond. Join our team of food service experts committed to the future of hospitality. Singer Equipment Company, now hiring. Industry-leading service provided by industry leaders Singer Equipment Company. Visit singerequipment.com/careers to apply today.
2: Welcome back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host Sherry Bayer, and my guest today is Joanna J- James. She's the founder and CEO of Map. And she's having her first conference coming up, the MAP Restaurant Reset in South Florida, April 24th to 26th. And Joanna, it's time for my speed round game. So what this is, is I'm going to name a couple things and you get to pick your preference, such as chocolate or vanilla. Awesome. Are you ready? Yes. All right. Here we go. Eat in at home or eat out at a restaurant.
3: I much prefer to eat out at a restaurant, but right now with three little girls under the age of seven, we tend to cook at home a lot too. <laughs>
2: <laughs> okay. I hear you. How about indoor dining or fresco dining? Uh, either. I think there's some like really
3: nice, dark, fun, you know, restaurants um, that you get that great feel,
2: but uh, fresco is pretty fun
3: too, obviously
2: fun. How about wine, beer, cocktail, mocktail, or champagne? Ooh,
3: um, that, you know, I, I saw this quote that was really funny to me recently. It said something like, um, there's people who should have been, who were having champagne and caviar, but should have been having hot dogs and beer. And I feel like I like both. So I totally get it. I think it it all depends on the time and place because I love all of the above.
2: Okay. I <laughs> think uh, it's hard to choose. How about tasting menu or a la carte? Um, hmm.
3: If there's a, a tasting menu offered, I'll usually go for that because I really respect the, you know, what went into creating that. And I think um, that's always the way to go.
2: So yeah, I would do that. How about small plates or large plates? Definitely small plates communal table or
3: chef's counter? Chef's counter. I was recently somewhere for a communal table and I just found there's no point to it.
2: (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. Okay. A couple more tipping or all-inclusive charge. Um, you know, this
3: is something we talk about a lot, uh, because I think it has to do with equity, with, uh, bridging that gap between front of house, back of house. But until we fully get there, I do understand, uh, And value, you know, I think the tip culture. Um, So, yeah, I I hope we can get to a place, um, and I I figure we could now, when the public is so involved in this conversation with restaurants, that it could be all inclusive. But until then, you know, I love tipping for great service, and and I think there's a big difference when you do get uh, great service.
2: Yeah. Okay. A few more. I have uh, producing films or producing conferences. (laughs) Well, look, when
3: I get into that film world, it's like everything else falls to the wayside. And so um, for me, it is just, it feels like a blessing that I ever got to do that and be part of that process. So I really want to get back to it. But I will say, you know, producing my first conference, there's also something just so Um, you know, exciting about the fact that number one, these people believe in what we're doing enough to want to come and be part of it. And so generous of of their knowledge. And then the people who are coming, you know, we're just, uh, you know, we have nearly um, from every state, a woman chef and restaurateur coming. So to me that that's a huge responsibility. And um, so yeah, I'm also really excited about doing this.
2: Wow, that's awesome. Okay. Being behind the camera or in front of the camera? Oh,
3: 100% behind.
2: I, I always <laughs> say I'm
3: a messenger. I do not like being in front of the camera.
2: <laughs> kind of. Yeah. But you're, you're good. You're, I've seen you do a lot of... I've seen you in a lot of interviews. You're good in front too. So, um, But yeah, I'm not surprised completely you said that. Okay. Last two are cheese plate or dessert? Dessert. Manhattan or Brooklyn.
3: Manhattan, just because that's where I lived for a little over 11 years. Um, and just, I love it. And I, I can't wait to go back one day. <laughs> so, um, but, you know, we've enjoyed a lot of great times in Brooklyn, but definitely Manhattan.
2: Cool. That's the game. That was fun. That was fun. So uh, for industry news, um, I mean, the big news news. Uh, just globally, or is uh, about Ukraine. And so I, I I picked out an article related to our industry. It was in the New York Times, and it was entitled, New York's Russian Restaurants Feel War's Impact. Most owners are anti, anti-war, anti and many of them are from the Ukraine, but customer numbers are down all the same. And this was by Alison Kruger. And yeah, this came out, I think it's in the print edition from... Uh, today in in the times or was online yesterday, um, and it just you know I was thinking about this with Russian restaurants, just the impact that they they might be facing, and this is you know this this is what this was all about that just people um, uh, Russian restaurants are they're having a PR problem uh, that a lot of the owners are openly against the war or even from. Ukraine and yet they're the reservations they're experiencing huge restaurant reservation cancellations social media campaigns against them bad online reviews it's like it's really a a problem and i i i feel for them i feel um that people are just making decisions or or being um anti these restaurants simply because they serve they're they're known as being russian so mm-hmm. Yeah, we're able to read this piece.
3: Oh, I think it's so sad because I think if there's anything we learned from what's going on in Ukraine, it's the resilience of the people and how unified they are. It's all about unity. And so if we're doing the complete opposite in the sense of, you know, the crazy part is some of these Russian restaurants, the husband or the wife is from Ukraine and uh, have lost some of their family members in Ukraine. So you know, anyone who tries to think they're being an activist, but yet they're not educated in the matter, they have no ethics around what they're doing, that's far from it. Um, it's one thing if you want to do something fun, like, you know, go say I'm going to have a Kiev mule <laughs> as opposed to a Moscow mule. Okay, great, you know. But um, when you do something that, um, you know, because I've heard of not just not only going to support these restaurants, but... Uh, damaging them you know just all these different things like you said writing reviews that are just not true um i just don't think it's right and especially when some of these restaurants are showing their support of ukraine they're they're posting about it they're saying we you know they have it on their website a, a flag in their uh restaurant uh you know in the front door so i don't know i think we all just need to um be be more uh open to what what the situation is um, then, you know, just do something that is uh, not grounded in, in reality.
2: Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's just that it's, it's sad that people just sometimes take action and they don't, <laughs> they're not, they're, they're not educating themselves and they're not, they're not really aware of the situation and they're just, and it's damaging people's lives and businesses. And so, yeah, I was, it's it's disturbing. And also that we're still, I mean, it's been, it's been a really tough time in general the past couple of years for restaurants with COVID and we're just sort of getting through that. And this is just another, um, another, another thing. So it's hard. And and what's
3: their connection to Putin?
2: You know, it's like, I understand everyone's upset at what is
3: happening, but you know, they're not connected to a war criminal. It, unless they're supporting the war, you know, you can't fault a, a, a restaurant that um, their ancestry is of Russian descent, and they want to share their food and culture with us. So, um, you know, that but this has been happening for so long, right? After 9-11, you know, mm-hmm. people were attacking uh, the Muslim community. Um, so there's always a scapegoat people want, but that's, you know,
2: it's not right. So. Yeah, no, it's not. And yes, what you said, I agree with. And uh, on another, I mean, related, but different note, there was also an article in the New York times, uh, Florence Fabricant covered about donations happening on behalf of some restaurants. And, um, Keith McNally's, uh, Balthazar, he, he posted that yesterday from his sales yesterday, he was going to donate, um, all the revenue to UNICEF's initiatives uh, for the to ease the plight of refugee children from Ukraine. And I he was estimating it was going to be 35000 to $40,000. And then I saw today he posted it was $50,000 and one of their guests matched it, someone very well off that they can do that um, but it's incredible there's a lot of efforts happening where people are um, you know taking initiatives and, and trying trying to be helpful so um, I think that's 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 very nice you know on the,
3: on the yeah. flip side And that's a great story to change the uh, the feel there because on the other hand you see how again that's the story behind chefs and restaurateurs they're automatically the ones who want to do something to help. You know, and mm-hmm. even during COVID when they were going through their worst times, um, and they didn't know how long they'd be closed or what they, you know, what it meant to reopen. Here they are feeding, you know, the our essential workers, the frontline heroes. And those are some of the most, um, you know, just really heartfelt moments ever. And, um, and yeah, it's, it's really incredible to see what,
2: someone- yeah. Restaurant. True. And also I know uh Selka, which is a popular restaurant, Ukrainian restaurant in East Village has been a line down the block for that since since this whole thing um happened. I, it was always always been a popular, popular restaurant, but there's definitely support. People are are making an effort to support. So that's that is nice. And um the Before I do my solo dining experience, just one more time to shout out about uh, the Taste Awards, which this show, my show here, is nominated for in a viewer's choice category. And so um, you can vote best food or drink radio po- broadcast. Um, you can go to the com. voting ends on the 11th which is 2 days from now. So um, if you like listening go vote. Um it would be wonderful to it would be very cool to win. Who knows, you know, it's great to be nominated as they say and uh we'll see. We'll see what happens. Um so um thank you in advance to anyone and thank you everyone who listens to this show obviously a passion project of mine. And um, I appreciate I appreciate everyone tuning in. Okay, so this week for my solo dining experience, I went to a restaurant called El Quixote. Here's the rundown. The location, 226 West 23rd Street near 8th Avenue at the Hotel Chelsea in Chelsea, New York City. The concept, so it's the reopening of one of New York's most iconic Spanish restaurants, which first opened in 1930. It had been closed since 2018 with the hotel's renovations. And so it just reopened, and they're now focusing more on northern Spain cuisine from the Basque uh, region. And the owners are, well, it's the Sunday Hospitality Group, which has Sunday in Brooklyn, Which is in Brooklyn. They also have one in London and Rule of Thirds, also in Brooklyn. And the owners, uh, it's co founder Adam Landsman, culinary director, partner Jamie Young, a new partner Charles Syke, and chef de cuisine is Byron Hogan. So, why did I go? Well, I love a good revival. My experience. So, this last Friday night, I went down to Chelsea as a walk-in, and uh, it was it was a bit busy when I got there. But luckily, a seat just opened up at the end of the bar, and I had good timing. So, um, I got a seat. I I I chatted with both the bartenders, Selma and Sergio. They were lovely. Um, I mentioned that I knew Adam to see if he was there, and he wasn't, but um, they were then very gracious and, and sent me out a little extra dish of olives, and um, uh, the place had a really nice energy and good vibes. And it was interesting hearing the couples around me. They were talking about the, how the, comparing the old restaurant menu to the new one. This one seemed to be more of the greatest hits that they've like narrowed it down a little bit. So what did I get? Well, I got a glass of their non-alcoholic sangria, which is called Santa Sangre. Um, I'm not going to do the Spanish names because I won't pronounce them correctly, but I had, they sent me out the olives with the pickled peppers and a baguette. And I got their coquetas de jamón. There was also a uh, salt cod option with the coquetas, but I did the jamón. And I got the anchovies and boquerones, which are white anchovies. And um, that came with grilled bread. So my take, well, it was all great. Um, the sangria was very sweet. I actually asked them, uh, the bartender added a little club soda t- for it, to it for me because um, I just needed to dilute a little bit. It was, But it was delicious. Um, I don't drink sangria or non-alcoholic sangria that much. It's not, don't really see it that much. Um, the olives were great. The anchovies, love them, it's very salty. And uh, the bread, perfect combination, and you can never go wrong with croquettas. The ambiance. So outside, they still have their signature red neon sign, and they have this yellow awning you can't miss, even though it's under scaffolding. I feel like it's been under scaffolding forever. Um, the place, it's like dark and swanky. It's got a lot of character. Uh, it's one side of the the space is the bar and the other is the dining room. It's intimate. It's about 65 seats, very low lighting. There's references to Don Quixote and, and frosted glass and murals. And um, it has character. It's cool. I'd say it's perfect for going solo on a date or with friends. Interesting tidbit. So as I said, this... Uh, This restaurant initially opened in the 1930s as a Spanish-themed bar and restaurant, and it became a watering hole for many eccentric figures in the 1960s. And later this year, Sunday Hospitality Group is opening a French-American bistro also in the hotel, so stay tuned for that. Personal fun fact, so speaking of greatest hits, I just need to throw out there, I got lucky and went to see Elton John at Barclay Center last week at a in Brooklyn and that was like his greatest hit show it was called the Farewell Tour so very excited to do that it was a good good time the cost of this meal was $47 that's not including tax or gratuity or the olives would i go back yes and their website is nyc.com and the website and the instagram's the same nyc.com or elkihotinyc um there you go have you have you heard of this place Joanna? I
3: hadn't um, but you know that's not a surprise you know, given the last few months of my life, <laughs> but, <laughs> well, uh, but it sounds really good, and I want to make a point to go,
2: yeah, it's fun if you're if you're down in the Chelsea area, I think right now they're only doing dinner service uh but um, yeah, as we're checking out it's um it's a great bar, I would say, it's like I don't know you sometimes you 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 know, you're at a bar that has like the right energy and it just feels good. And I I liked my solo dining, bar dining experience. So,
3: Well, I love that you do that too. I think that's so, uh, that was like one of the funnest things I did way back when, before I've been inundated by little people and, and my husband, which I I (laughs) want to to dine with him too, but you know, there's something just freeing and you never know what, Who you know, interesting you're going to speak with, and and you get to connect more with the bartenders. Although now, you know, people are always on their phones. So I don't know, but but yeah, it sounds fun. Yeah.
2: Yeah. True. Well, um, yeah, I like, I like, I like my, it was a spontaneous move for me to this night to go out. And I, I love that, that I have the ability to do that in New York. And there's always places to go. So. Okay, uh, it's time for the final question. So, my next guest is Lynn House. She's a longtime bartender who is the national brand educator at Heaven Hill Brands. And that includes Elijah Craig Bourbon and Poma, Pomegranate Liquor and many, many more brands. And she's based out of Chicago. So, Joanna, can you please ask a question for Lynn?
3: Yes. Um- I'm curious, because I'd love to incorporate more, you know, women and uh, mixologists and in beverage programs with what we're doing at MAP. So and I was a longtime bartender. So I'm curious uh, for Lynn, how does she see all these different uh, beverage programs and, um, you know, different uh, bars and, and places operating from when she was uh, in it, you know, because I, I guess she's been doing this now for some time and and i mean in the sense of are there more women um in leadership positions is there zero tolerance policies do we feel that it's more respectful um and there's opportunity for growth without you know what you heard of having a you know do some pretty exploitative and horrible things that were um existing so yeah, I'm curious about that and also as an educator now, if um not just her brand, but if in general more brands could take more of a um an active role in trying to make things a little better when it comes to them um engaging with these different um, you
2: know, places. Awesome great questions. I will find out what she has to say. So, thank you. <laughs> and that's the show. There you go. Um, thank you so much for joining me. i I loved hearing all about your stories and the amazing work you've done. you you're incredible. and i I, you know, this conference I know is going to be wonderful. So um, wishing you the best and, th- and just thank you so much for for joining me.
3: Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much, Sherry. I love listening to your show. Definitely going to be going to com. That's for sure. And um, yeah,
2: I thank you. Really was fun. Thank you so much. Makes my day. <laughs> So my guest today has been Joanna James. She's the founder and CEO of MAP, which is a nonprofit supporting women-led food organizations, empowering women to lead through mentorship and advocacy. She has her first conference coming up, MAP Restaurant Reset. It's taking place in South Florida, April 24th to 26th. And she's also film director of a fine line, a women's place in the kitchen. You can find out more about all of this at Mapimpact.org. That's M-A-P-P impact.org, and a fine line movie.com, and on social media at mapimpact, at a fine line movie, and at Joanna James Films. You can follow me at Sherry Bayer at Bayer PR, and at All Industry. My Facebook page is all in the industry. My websites are at BayerPublicRelations.com, SherryBayer.com, and AllInTheIndustry.com. All of our shows are archived at heritageradionetwork.org. We are also on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. And don't forget to vote at thetasteawards.com. It ends this Friday, the 11th. And again, appreciate your support. And thanks to my engineer today, Kevin, and again to Joanna. I'm your host and producer, Sherry Bayer. I'll be back next week with a new show. Hope you'll tune in then. And thank you for being part of All in the Industry. Bye.